Hi there, my name's Derek, and together with my wife Tracy and my two kids, we as a family attend Common Ground Constantiaberg and have been doing so for about 10 years now. I'm a full-time TV producer, and together with two mates, I run a TV production company in Newlands. And I can tell you that from the bottom of my heart, I have really, really struggled in so many ways over the past 12 months. This past year has been something else. I think this pandemic, we've recognized the loss of lives and we've seen the toll that this pandemic has taken on people's health. But what we've also seen is the loss of livelihoods. And I think we all know uh, friends who have lost companies that they've spent many years building and friends and family who have lost their jobs. And we know the toll this pandemic has taken on the uh, events industry, uh, the tourism sector, the entertainment industry, and on restaurants. It's been absolutely brutal. Many people, in fact, many of you common grounders are in survival mode. And you're actually... You're just trying to get by. You're desperately trying to get to the end of the month. And the current normal is weighing so heavily on you that you can't see past your most urgent needs. But maybe it's during this time, in this particular season, that we need to assess our work life and our approach to work. Today in the Origin series, we're unpacking the beginning of work. And this is a message that I believe God wanted me to hear and to share. And it's a great time for you to lean in and think about your call, your career, and your approach to work. And it's my prayer that God really speaks directly and personally into your unique situation. About 20 years ago, um, my friends used to tell me I had the best job in the world. I was an insert director for a local uh, popular television show that focused on the rich and the famous. And uh, I spent my days around people that were at the top of their game. One day I'd be at the Venice Film Festival at a, at a private party and I'd watch Mick Jagger chat up Claudia Schiffer. And about a week later, I'd be on a beach in Hawaii chatting to Buzzy Kerbox. And then I was off to the Great Barrier Reef and I'd be diving with the celebrity chef. I, I had lunch with Wilbur Smith. I sat across from Dennis Hopper as he chomped on a cigar. I toured Beezy Bailey's house and then watched him paint. I went to the Miss Universe contest in Puerto Rico and I watched glass blowers in Italy and bronze sculptors in Franschhoek do what really honestly nobody else could do. Every day involved this new and exciting experience with somebody who was at the top of their game, at the top of their craft and had become the envy of the world. And it was amazing to me how it got old so quickly. After two years, I no longer envied the rich and the famous, particularly the rich. Sure, some of them seemed content, but most, when I looked behind the curtain, I could tell something was wrong, something was missing. 
In fact, I'll never forget sitting in the edit suite, cutting a story on one of South Africa's most affluent men. And the editor who doesn't share my faith, he said to me, Derek, look into his eyes. Whatever he sold to get what he's got, it wasn't worth it. You see, we can work so hard. We can push ourselves to the limit. But what for? In 2009, the Harvard Business Review released a review of people in professional services. So that's consultants and investment bankers and lawyers and IT professionals. And it found that uh, they believed an always-on approach was essential if their organizations were to succeed in the global marketplace. 94% of 1,000 professionals said they gave more than 50 or even 60 hours a week to their jobs. That didn't include the 20 to 25 hours a week they spent ready with their mobile phones, messaging and answering messages anywhere at any time and in any place, regardless of what they were supposed to be doing. And that's 12 years ago. Now expectations are even higher. In fact, Harvard Business Review reported this January that due to COVID and all the workplace changes and the additional juggling that people have to do, burnout, which is defined as chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed, is at an all-time high. In 2017, a global poll conducted by Gallup uncovered that out of the world's 1 billion people, only 15% are engaged in their work. That means an astronomical 85% of full-time workers are unengaged and unhappy in their jobs. One of my mentors in life once told me, you can make back money that's been lost, but you can never make back lost time. The average person spends 90,000 hours of their lives at work. That's a third of our lives. That's a lot of time to be spent in disengagement. And since our work years are the primary years of our lives, they are precious to us. It matters to us. It matters to our levels of joy, our levels of satisfaction and fulfillment. And you know what? It matters to God. And yet statistically, for most of us and the people around us, we exist in this time being disengaged and dissatisfied. We're dreaming of the weekend. We're dreaming of wine o'clock. We're dreaming of the next better project, next promotion, paycheck. And we think that's what's going to make it all worth it. Yet God designed work. It was part of his original design order. And so so today as we're exploring the beginning of work, and hopefully we'll unpack now how God sees it and our calling to fruitfulness on this earth. As we look through scripture, we see that God has a very high view of work. Work wasn't the result of the fall. Work is part of being an image bearer. God works. God designed us to work. So perhaps by looking through his lens at work, we may start to get a better perspective on work. 
the Theology of Work Project, says this. The book of Genesis is the foundation for the theology of work. Any discussion of work in biblical perspective eventually finds itself grounded on passages in this book. Genesis is incomparably significant for the theology of work because it tells the story of God's work in creation. The first work of all and the prototype for all work that follows. God is not dreaming up an illusion, but creating a reality. The created universe that God brings into existence and then provides the material of human work, space, time, matter, and energy. Laboring in God's image, we work in creation, on creation, with creation, and if we work as God intends, for creation. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and chapter 2 verse, until chapter 2 verse 2. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. God saw that all he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Any theology of work must begin with a theology of creation. In other words, do we regard this material world, the stuff we work with, as God's first-rate stuff, imbued with lasting value? Or do we dismiss this as a temporary job site, a, a nasty testing ground, a sinking ship from which we must escape to get to God's true location in an immaterial heaven. In Genesis, we see God at work and we, we learn how God intends us to work. We both obey and disobey God in our work and we discover that God uses both our obedience and our disobedience the other 65 books of the Bible each have their own unique contributions uh, to, to work and God's call on work. But they all spring from the same source found here in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. So what truths can we draw? Well, there's so many and so many ways we can unpack this. Today, we're going to focus on God's call to work, how he wants us to work and his design and rhythm for work and rest. You see, we are called to work. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to 
work it and take care of it. Here's an important point. Our labor, our work is not the result of sin. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, we wouldn't all be eternally lazing in the garden in hammocks. In the opening lines of Genesis, we see not only that God existed before any of his creation, but that he works and he delights in his work. As beings made in his image, we too are created to work and to delight in it. As God kept saying about his creation, it was good. Work was something good. And his sharing the work with humanity, his image bearers, was also very good as we see in verse verse 31. Part of our work is ruling or stewarding over what God created to make it fruitful, to bring forth flourishing, to fill the earth and to subdue it, to tend to it, to take care of it. God's dominion isn't as a tyrant making what he created work for him, but rather as a father who delights in what he created, wanting to share that delight, wanting it to flourish and grow. And by doing so, it will reveal, it'll show his glory. What sin did, the repercussion for sin was a curse. And that curse included a curse upon the ground, which resulted in thorns and thistles and a change in the natural, how the natural world works. You can go ahead and read about it in Romans 8, 19 to 22. Remember, Adam and Eve had been placed in the garden to tend to it and to keep it. But when they rebelled against God, their rebellion had consequences and that affected work too. Instead of, of being something good, a delight, work became a burden and even an idol. People were never meant to find their identity in work and their ultimate worth in work, but they did. They were meant to find their identity and their ultimate worth in the God who called them to work. But we've flipped it around and we've begun to serve work rather than God. As a result of the fall of mankind, we've corrupted this call to dominion, turning it into something destructive. Part of how our sin corrupted work is seen in how we evaluate work, whether we overvalue or undervalue it. And so we need to go back again to the beginning to see how God can still help us to get the right order. We see God working in his creation. We see God digging in the soil to create mankind. He has his hands in the dirt. We often find menial work tedious and demeaning, but God demonstrates its worth by example. He's the first to toil the soil in order to bring about flourishing. And it was good. He delighted in doing and he delighted in his creation in all he created. Often when we think of paradise, we think of soft sand, great waves, a pina colada, lazing around, not a care in the world, and certainly not work. However, no one has truly experienced paradise except Adam and Eve. In the midst of this paradise, the Garden of Eden, God called his people to work. The commissioning after being created in the image of God was to work as he had worked, to continue doing his work on earth. It was an honor, a privilege, a delight to be a part of their inheritance as image bearers. 
It was not a negative. It was glorious. It was part of what made paradise, paradise. But let's bring this back to Jesus. Jesus, think about this. Jesus didn't come as a statesman, as the Romans would have expected, or as a thinker or as a philosopher, as the Greeks would have expected. Jesus came as a carpenter as somebody who works with his hands, somebody who builds stuff that other people need, or maybe he fixed stuff that was broken. I bet you he fixed stuff that was broken. We also see that Jesus elevates the work of shepherds as a noble profession. It relates to who God is and what he wants his people to do. He doesn't all call us, he doesn't call us all to be like presidents and like kings. But he does call us all, even presidents and kings, to be like shepherds, tending to others, caring for them, and helping them flourish. It's we who try and elevate ourselves by seeing menial tasks as being beneath us. God, our Father, and Jesus, they don't see any good, honest work that way. Today we see the extreme views, especially in South Africa. We see how communism scorns the professional work and, and capitalism scorns the humble work. But we can clearly see in the Bible that all work has worth. All good, honest work has dignity because God does it and he calls us to it. Work saves lives, sustains lives and brings life. We'd all get sick and die if no cleaning happened. We'd all starve to death if no farming happened. Do you know who Sisyphus is? Uh, in Greek mythology, uh, he was the king who was cursed for lying and cheating. And his curse was that for all eternity, he'd have to roll this huge boulder up a hill in Hades. C.S. Lewis, the famous author of the Narnia series and a great thinker and Christian apologist, he said this, I think I can understand that feeling about a housewife's work being like that of Sisyphus, but surely in reality the most important work of the world. What do ships, railways, miners, cars, governments, and so on exist for, except that people may be fed, warmed, and safe in their own homes? As Dr. Johnson said, to be happy at home is the end of all human endeavor. First, to be happy to prepare for being happy in our own real home hereafter. Second, in the meantime, to be happy in our houses. We wage war in order to have peace. We work in order to have leisure. We produce food in order to eat it. So housewife or house husband, your job is the one for which all others exist. The work of raising the next generation and keeping families fed and thriving is a high calling and of great importance. Whether you combine that work with other work for financial reasons or you spend your day at home, the world's view and God's view, like with many tasks and jobs, are often at odds. We must seek God's view and see the dignity and worth in each job. It's also why we should be employers if we can. My greatest fulfillment over the past 10 years has been in employing people and seeing them flourish and feed their families and thrive. We create dignity when we provide work for others to do. If God values all work, then we should too. 
if we have the means to create employment, that too is a call from God to create and provide flourishing in society. How God calls us to work. So now that we can see that God has created us to do work, that it's good when done with his perspective, how are we to work? How would God have us work? Or how do we even decide what work to do? Tim Keller, pastor and author in New York City, says that in order to know how God calls us to work, we should look in, look out, and look up. Look in. This is where we look at how God created us uniquely and specifically. The specific talents and passions God planted in me. I work because of who I am. I work in what I am gifted to do. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are all made in the image of a ruler. So we're here to rule. Now, you might have a warped idea of what it means to rule because of crooked politicians or or bad leaders or bosses, but to rule as God intends us to means to bring flourishing and order. As God intends us, you see, this might not always result in a paycheck. If we're hunting for work, that is a worthwhile endeavor in the eyes of God. If you're working to get work. Only people place value on economic rewards. It's clear that God sees all work and endeavors for him as worthwhile and having dignity, irrespective of the money we earn from doing it. And stop comparing yourself to other people and stop comparing yourself to your childhood dreams. Comparison is the greatest thief of joy. It'll bleed the joy right out of the work that you do have. See, we're all made in the image of a creator, so we're here to create. This doesn't mean art. This means creating order from chaos, bringing good and effective HR policies to an unhappy department initiates flourishing, newness, and order, and it is good. Bringing systems that cause success and help people, bringing up children, volunteering our time to those that need help. We can't create like God can create something out of nothing, but we can bring form, shape, relevance, usefulness out of what has been created. And that is what we've been instructed to do. We see this in our work all the time. Structures, systems, highways, software, software, furniture, cars, clothing, art, music, teaching, leading, accounting, writing, and healing. We bring order and newness out of what has been created, undeveloped material. And at the end of each day, let's look back at what we've done and say, it is good. Look out. Look at the world around you. Give the world what it needs to have. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and Take care of it. Take care of it. Find the work that the world 
needs. Our gifts are given to us. The context we are born into with those gifts are specific to us, is specific to us. We're to be stewards of it. We are gifted and put in a time and place for the work God has for us. We're to be generous with our time, our treasures and our talents. If we're school teachers, then clearly our time and our talents are our gift. If we're successful business people or entrepreneurs, then our stewardship, our treasures as a gift of our stewardship, that's the gift. And we're to steward as image bearers. We are stewards to this world. Work, even with looking in and looking out, it's still going to be hard. It's still going to be frustrating and, and taxing. We're on this side of heaven. And the fall came with consequences. So let's look up. Look up. Look at the one who has called you. We're missional. God calls us. As we orient ourselves towards him, all these things fall into perspective. Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. If we work like this, by looking in, looking out, looking up, we'll find fulfillment, meaning, and engagement. God didn't put us on earth, commission us to look after it and then leave. God is still at work. Our work is to be alongside him for his glory. And he demonstrated this in his creation and, and how we're to find perspective of God, in perspective of work in God. And in his ultimate rest. Genesis 2, 1 to 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. At the end of six days, God's creation of the world is finished. This doesn't mean that God ceases working, for as Jesus said in John 5, 17, my father is still working and I also am working. Nor does it mean that creation is complete, for we see that God left plenty of work for his people to bring creation further along. But at that moment, at the end of six days, chaos had been turned into an inhabitable environment, now supporting plants, fish, birds, animals, and human beings. God crowns his six days of work with a day of rest, the Sabbath. It comes from the Hebrew word uh, Shabbat, which means to stop. While creating humanity was the climax of God's creative work, the seventh day of rest was the climax of God's creative week. Why does God rest? He isn't tired, he doesn't need to rest, but he chooses to limit his creation in time and space. As long as time is running, God blesses six days for work and one day 
for rest. There's a limit, that's a limit that God himself observes and it later becomes a command that he gives to his people. We see this in Exodus 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter or female or male servants, nor your animals or foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. While religious people over the centuries tended to pile up regulations defining what constituted keeping the Sabbath, Jesus clearly said that God made the Sabbath for us, for our benefit. In Mark 2, 27, he said, then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What are we to learn from this? God designed and demonstrated the Sabbath to us. It was a gift for us, a gift from the creator to his creation to be enjoyed. Work was a gift and so was rest. Because of the fall, both got corrupted by us. Part of finding our delight again in work is being delighted in what is ultimate, in God. And he created the Sabbath to give us an opportunity to do just that. The Sabbath was created that we might find our delight in God. Dan Allender put it this way, the Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intends, intended, is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it's the best day of the week. It's the day we anticipate on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And it's the day we remember on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. And the day where we feast, play, dance, have sex, sing, pray, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk, and watch creation in all its fullness. Few people are willing to enter the Sabbath and sanctify it to make it holy because a day full of delight and joy is more than most people can bear in a lifetime, let alone a week. When we, like God, stop our work on whatever is our seventh day, we acknowledge that our life is not defined by work or productivity. As Walter Brugman said, Sabbath provides a visible testimony that God is the center of life, that human production and consumption take place in a world ordered, blessed, and restrained by the God of all creation. In a sense, we renounce some part of our autonomy, embracing our dependence on God, our creator. Otherwise, we live with the illusion that life is completely under human control. Part of making the Sabbath holy and a regular part of our work life acknowledges that God is ultimately the center of life. Chaos, work, chaos, work, chaos, bring, bring some order, create something, chaos, work, bring a little bit more order, chaos, work, oh, there's, there's more order that's been created, uh, some more chaos, stop, rest, <sighs> exhale. Not because it's done, but because there's more to do. Sabbath was actually the first day of the week, and it began in the evening. Basically, God designed our work week to begin with Sabbath rest, and our work day to begin with sleep. We have to sleep. God doesn't have to sleep. It demonstrates 
our dependency on Him, that we begin in rest before we work. Over time, we flip this around. We think that rest is a reward for work rather than what God intended. Rest is not optional. It is pivotal to your successful call and career. God is asking you to rest and for resting's sake. Rather than resting for work or after work, we trust God that all our needs will be met and we show we're trusting God by resting as he's asked us to do. And resting doesn't mean spending money and going on fancy vacations. Resting just means resting. My career has certainly meandered all over the place and I've had my share of struggles and, and failures. About 10 years ago, I reached the point where I really found I loved my workplace and I do, I absolutely love the people I work with. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm no longer stressed or frustrated, but I am extremely happy in work. And uh, I see God's hand at work in what I'm doing. I'm not where I dreamt I'd be as a young adult, but it's great to work. A while back, I was actually on a family holiday with, with a very good friends, and uh, I was walking on the beach with a friend of mine, um, and she's a, a lawyer, she's a, a partner in a, in a big firm, and uh, very successful. I'm not going to uh, reveal her identity in case she sues me, but she's a litigator, and uh, she's hired by the biggest companies and political groups to look after their interests. Uh, and she's got, I've always admired her, her status, her, her wealth, and her success. She's really also just an awesome person. And she turned to me on the beach and she said to me, so Derek, do you actually like your job? And I said, like it? I love my job. I'm, I'm constantly fulfilled in my work. And she said, constantly fulfilled. And, and I'll never forget what she said because she was totally shocked. She said, if, I f if I'm fulfilled one day in a year, that's a lot. Tim Keller quotes Madonna in his book, Counterfeit Gods, looking specifically at the false god of success. And here's what the material girl has to say. I have an iron will and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being and then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is this horrible fear of being mediocre and that's always pushing me, pushing me because even though I've become somebody I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. How much of this relates to the world we find ourselves in? The drive to be somebody, the drive to do something great. It causes us to despair, to judge, to strive, to feel like a failure as we head towards retirement, as we decide to sacrifice career goals for the good of the family, as we remain home to be homemakers. This drive to find in, uh, identity in yourself, in what you do, in your talents and in your treasures will short change you every single time because the payout is short-lived. It'll begin again almost instantly, sucking the joy out of work and the rest out of you because it was never designed to ultimately nourish your soul. You were never designed to find identity in work, but in Christ. 
Jesus came to remind us of this. He reminded us of the Sabbath and God's view of work and that ultimately we only find true rest in Him. And the invitation remains. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we see today that God's got a very high view of work because he designed it. In the beginning and when Jesus was on earth and indeed after he was raised from the dead, he demonstrated uh, the f- his view on the flourishing of creation. He still calls us to do the same at home and at work, how we look after our environment and live with others in mind, how we raise our children, how we look after our time, our treasures and our talent. All of this comes into the right perspective when we focus our core identity in Jesus and allow his way of seeing to be our way of seeing. And the key gift that God gave us to help us do this well is the Sabbath, which is a gift that we need to be intentional about. So what work habits do you need to stop doing or do less of or start doing? How do you need to restructure your diary, your heart around making sure that you're practicing Sabbath rest every week? As we close, there are three types of people that I want to pray for. Firstly, those looking for work and then people wanting a fresh revelation on the worth and dignity of what they do. And then people who have made work an idol and want God to be ultimate again. Let's pray. Now, Lord God, this pandemic and these lockdowns have caused havoc, Father. So many have lost work and lost businesses and lost income. So many people are now so deep in debt and struggling to make ends meet. We look to you, Father, as our Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Lord, open a tap of opportunity over your people, I pray, in the name of Jesus, that we can recover what has been lost, that people can find again purpose, fulfillment, and pleasure in what you've called us to do. Lord God, during this pandemic, we just pray for healing. We pray for your healing over this world. And we pray that in this time, you'll help those looking for work to find it. And Lord God, give us all a fresh revelation of the call you've placed on our lives. Help us to see our work, whatever it might be, through your lens and to appreciate it, to delight in it again and bring you glory in our attitude towards work. Help us to honor you in our workplaces as we want to be fruitful and bring flourishing. And Father God, if we've made work our idol, Lord God, we just want to repent of that and we want to say that you are our ultimate, Lord God. You are sovereign, you are supreme, you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords and and we want to honor you in our work, Lord God, and through our work. We want to be your image bearers in our workplace, Father God. Help us to do as you've called us to do, to bring flourishing and fruitfulness and to honor you. We love you, Lord. Amen.